Are you attending Shop Talk? If you are, I hope that you're ready for the AI-driven future of commerce. If not, you can get ready by joining us and our friends from IM Digital, a leading retail experience agency, to learn about the future of commerce. You can join their March 18th event taking place at Shop Talk exclusively with your invite from Future Commerce. Find out more today at events.imdigital.com. Today on Visions. It got to this point where they said, well, I'm not sure what they want. It's like, well, are you talking to them? What, what do you mean? I mean, like, I, I have the data in front of it. How do I talk to We're moving towards more silos, I think, in terms of distribution and more intermediaries um, vying for space, that valuable space between the brand and the customer and getting in between, you know, being able to collect that data and sell it back to the brand. Welcome to Visions. Visions is an annual audiovisual trends report that covers the changes in culture and commerce. This series is meant to be a companion guide to our 100-page report. Download and follow along at visions.report. Episode 2, The Discourse. Hi there, I'm Philip. The Visions Report is made up of eight core themes. They are divided into three sections, consumer, culture, and modernity. In each section, we make a reasoned argument as to why a shopper behaves the way that they do. And we give that trend a name, like romanticism, or the homogenization of experiences, or the plurality of identity. We communicate these ideas in three distinct ways, through our expertise, through logic, and through emotion, or ethos, pathos, and logos. This is a concept that is found in Aristotle's rhetoric. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher who lived in the 4th century BC. The rhetoric states that you must appeal to credibility, emotions, and reason. Most of the content found in e-commerce media, or in professional circles, focus on credibility and reason alone. If you know who I am, then you'll trust what I say. And if I make sound arguments and present facts proving my case, I may persuade you. But full persuasion requires a third dimension, emotion. On today's episode, we go to a live discussion at the Vision Summit in West Palm Beach, Florida. For this year's report, we gathered a group of experts to join us in the creation of our annual Vision Study. This group of brilliant minds gathered together for three days to discuss the core themes at the heart of Visions. Throughout this episode, you will hear a number of voices, and where necessary, we will provide context. We begin with an Aristotelian discourse, a conversation about a core emotional state of the consumer, happiness. And we ask, can we make customers happy? Truly happy? Can we reason with them? And if so, do we employ ethos, pathos, and logos? 
I think we talk about experiences a lot in our industry, in e-commerce or in retail. We talk a lot about how we can affect an outcome, like a conversion rate optimization. But I don't know that we've ever really touched on the meta topic, which is what makes people happy? What, what actually like, makes people happy? I think if we start there, it will guide and affect everything that we do. It will be an outflow of that. In your opinion, what do you think makes people happy in this world? Web3 Venture Firm Chief Brand Officer Michael Miraflor. I think it's different for every individual. Obviously, you can fall back on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and that forms the foundation for how everyone feels satisfaction for any action or any you know compliment that they get or um, how they go about their day-to-day. But I feel like through the past two years of the pandemic, the way that people seek happiness has fundamentally changed, both in the home and outside of the home. I think you know a gathering in real life, meeting old friends or new people is a different level of satisfaction for a lot of people now than it had been prior to the pandemic because we had that taken away from us. Mm. And I think that the relationship between things that we felt that we had lost over the past couple of years, whether they be physical objects or connections with people or experiences out in the real world, has restocked how people think about what makes them happy. I think people are being honest with themselves and with their families and with their friends about opting into things, opting out of things. And relationships with physical objects and products are much the same. I think there's a reevaluation and a, a, a different lens versus what there was prior. And this isn't to say that things like external signaling power isn't important. It's just it has to satisfy you before you can feel comfortable signaling that out to the world, whereas that might have been flipped mm. prior. So, Maya, we were talking yesterday about your experience uh, walking into some retailers locally here. Yeah. And, uh, and you actually tapped into something really powerful there about the unhappiness that you felt when you were browsing some of these retailers without naming names, or maybe, I don't know, maybe do. Um, uh, without naming names, wh- what do you think are some of the, uh, the things that we see right now in the world of retail that are causing maybe some latent unhappiness in in the mind of the customer. Author and retail analyst Maya Knights. Our value system have changed, have altered. I think we really, from a retail experience, we want to know that we've got the best, the best deal, the best product. And the fallover from two years of pandemic has basically led to a lot of stock in a lot of stores. And the experience that I was telling you about yesterday was literally walking into a fashion store and being overwhelmed, literally overwhelmed by every kind of summer dress under the sun. And in that, you get the, the impression that the, the retailer's gone, I know what you're going to want when you come out of lockdown, and I'm going to give it to you. But also, I don't quite know what my demand levels are going to be like. So I'm going to hedge my bets and buy more um, stock. And it just led to a really unpleasant experience in the store that was Confusing, confusing, overwhelming. I think consumers want retailers, the commerce experience nowadays, to help them find the better choice um, in that sense that they are not, consumers do not want you to, to blind them with so much choice that they, you become the destination because you can get everything there. 
I think for retailers nowadays to want to be everything to everyone is, is, is an impossibility. Um, I really think you have to know who your best customers are and go deep on that. Um, let Amazon be the everything store in that sense. You were saying that like trying to get something off the rack, that there's this psychological impact that happens after the purchase, right? Absolutely. You walk away and you think, have I bought the right thing? Have I got the right price for it? Because there was so much stuff in that shop. I, there was no way I was going to be able to see it all, um, experience it all, feel the fabrics, for example. So, yeah, I mean, there's many, many examples over the years of range rationalization being required because people just get so confused when you give them so much choice. And I think where we've come from has been, particularly in terms of e-com, the opportunity to have endless scroll, endless aisle, means I can have endless numbers of choices. But actually, that works in reverse for consumers, it actually destabilizes them, makes them feel insecure, I think, to give them the security that they've walked away with a, with a purchase that they're going to be happy with for a lifetime. To make them a loyal customer so they return, you've got to curate that so much more finely for them now and, and be really, really clear on why you're doing what you're doing, why you're offering them the products that, that they're looking at. Brian Ling, co-founder of Future Commerce. It's so interesting what you're saying. I wrote an article a couple of Black Fridays ago about how depressing it was to shop online with endless scroll, endless aisle, just like constant products and like just isolating experience because you're just scrolling through like millions of e-commerce sites or whatever the number is. And it just feels like it's endless. And, and all the while, you're just looking directly at a screen, not interacting with the people that you love, and 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 um, and it's a very isolating experience. It's actually not necessarily about being happy. Mm-hmm. It's about peace. It's about feeling like whole. And when you're just looking at a screen and you're scrolling through, that doesn't make you feel that. Grace, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Like, what do you think is important? What makes people feel that sense of like? purpose or happiness or wholeness. Brand and omni-channel strategist, Grace Clark. Well, at least as it pertains to branding, I think there's a relationship between the desire for serendipity and discovery, Mm -hmm. which can lead to these endless scroll experiences, and the balance for certainty and peace. Just like Maya was saying, I think it is so important for consumers to feel confident in the decision they've made. We see the way companies are hedging around that, free returns, people buying online, trying everything at home, returning things. But really, everybody is just looking for the solution that's right for them as a person, but like Michael said, to signal and perform their identity. So more and more, the conversations I have as I spend more time with Gen Z, a little bit of Gen Alpha, and also when I'm working with brands who have older audiences, the theme emerges that people are not looking for this default of feeling happy, they want to feel confident or at peace with their decision. It aligns with the bigger trends we're seeing in the wellness market and the reaction to the wellness marketing, which is people want to understand what the desire is that they're going for, that happiness is not this panacea, it's not realistic, Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the default state people want to be in, but they want the ups and downs of life 
in great products to underpin that. So that doesn't mean necessarily they want the best dishwasher to take them through the ups and downs of hosting parties. I think each product is now having a more niche place in people's lives. And some products aren't meant to be something that you buy and keep forever. People are understanding that there is still a thrill of newness and they're trying to find different ways to experience that with with you know with regard to being a sustainable consumer and someone who is ecologically minded people want to understand that their values connect to the things that they buy from future commerce insiders issue number 80 rethinking brand power structures many marketers think that permitting demanding or motivating are your options for controlling a consumer's behavior. This kind of best practice thinking today for customers that follow a purchasing path follows what we would call an Aristotelian philosophy. That is, it is in terms of what is natural to a human being. We build things that are intuitive. It is intuitive or natural for us to use a search bar to find what we want. It is natural for us to have visual and color and hierarchical cues for actions like adding a product to a shopping cart. It is natural for us to use broadly recognized symbols and words to represent navigational features and elements. But Michel Foucault, another philosopher, may argue against that. Foucault may argue that the outcomes of these types of initiatives are nearly impossible to predict because the power structures between the brand and the consumer are too complex. They're too nuanced. Instead, discourse and the passing of knowledge are the only way to wield true power. Brands would do well to understand philosophy. From the Visions Report. If we're looking at this uh, this theme that actually emerged in our report in our survey uh, was the consumers in our research told us that the things that they believe model their identity the most and the possessions that they own are actually the ones where we have the fewest amount of choice. Smartphones, cars, sneakers emerge. And I said, that's preposterous. There's a billion sneaker brands. And I was challenged on that. No, actually, there's like four, right? <laughs> really? Like, there's actually four. Um, so is it, I think that's really interesting because things like booze, uh, things like uh, uh, coffee, no offense, Mike, um, th- things that have become sort of uh, heavily commodified in this world have no bearing on our identity, and uh, or at least according to our, our research. It, as our sort of resident Amazon expert, don't want to throw you uh, down that rabbit hole, Kiri, uh, is it possible to, for a company like Amazon, who is, you know, one of the largest corporations in the world, we look at that, I think many people see Amazon as just being e-commerce. That's what Amazon is. For many people, they don't know about the wealth of direct-to-consumer brands. They don't know about emerging brands. They think of e-commerce and Amazon as being a synonymous thing. How are those two sort of polar views of identity realized in Amazon? And does, that, does a consumer even care or think about that when it comes to personal fulfillment? Head of Retail Marketplace Strategy at Acadia, Kiri Masters. I think Amazon is, you talked about commodity, and Amazon is the ultimate utility. I know what I'm going to get, what I'm going to get, I know that I can find anything that I'm, that I'm looking for there. 
The difference is that there's not that curation element. There is not that sort of uh, discovery experience, the thrill of the hunt. It is the, it's the everything store. And in that sense, that, that utility is there to serve up what I'm looking for when I need it. That's not the reason for being for Amazon is to provide any sense of fulfillment or identity for people. It's more along the lines of the everything store, the, the, the endless aisle and being a utility. With the penetration into U.S. households, over 50% of U.S. households having an Amazon Prime subscription, it's a part of people's lives like their utility provider, essentially. We live in a, in a world now where utility is sort of, this utility of products is sort of taken care of by the, some of the major big box providers, Amazon, Costco, Walmart, et cetera. And actually, if you shop at those stores, you can live a pretty fulfilled, like all of your needs can be met by those things. One of the um, trends that we've covered for a long time at Future Commerce is this idea of art and commerce coming together. And um, speaking of Greek philosophers, that was one of their questions, like what is the value of art? right? And what role does it play in our lives? And so when we think about um, fulfillment, um, in some ways, you know, brand kind of doesn't even matter at the moment when it comes to living a life that's, that's like got those Maslow hierarchy of needs, like the base level covered. And every purchase beyond that is a purchase that is all about art and identity. And so as we make decisions about purchasing, we can go get what we need from Costco or we can go get something that we is actually sort of a uh, it's fulfillment of identity and enjoyment and, and art. And so Mike, you know, working at Trade Coffee, a lot of your products are actually sort of that step up. They're actually their art in many ways. They're saying, uh, I want beyond the base Costco level experience. And so I'd love to hear your viewpoint on where art falls into the realm of that fulfillment that we've been talking about. Mike Lackman, CEO of Trade Coffee. Well, I think we're talking with a pretty broad brush here. And so when when we start with the original question that we undertook with this conversation, um, we've never been more individualistic in the way we're pondering these things. So there isn't an answer for what the consumer wants. Um, I think the simple, the simplest thing you could say broadly is that this is becoming a currency of what promises you can make, who cares about that, and then can you keep that? And the less authentically or the less consistently you can keep that promise, the less meaningful that promise is, the less value you're creating on either side of that relationship. And so when you look at something like art in a coffee bag, you can get coffee anywhere. Even one week into the lockdown, there were places that would sell you some coffee. It wasn't that hard to find. And so I think as you get away from the early days of e-commerce and things like getting things delivered to your house as a convenience is no longer all that novel, the question is who cares enough about those things that you can deliver a tremendous amount of value by doing something artful? And is that something you can deliver sustainably, keep those promises and build something sustainable around that? And so then when we look at something like coffee from the country's best craft roasters, I think it means that we're going after customers who want both, like in music terms, the song, mm-hmm. which is the coffee and the way it tastes and all the utility of that, and the album cover. Mm-hmm. Because when I say to people, people shop by the labels, of course they do. 
Sgt. Pepper's is Sgt. Pepper's because of the art mm -hmm. and how different that was from the White Album. And more people actually remember those things than what order the songs were in or exactly how they sounded. When you say art in the context of something like Hellenistic philosophy or something along those lines, I, I think there is an interesting element of being able to break through and making some of those exceptional things more accessible as consumers become more and more individualistic. And you have a broader group of people looking for some of these exceptional experiences at a time when they're working harder than ever mm. for every dollar that they can get their hands on. And each of those dollars gets them so little. Actually, in your field, I was speaking with the founder and she was telling me that, you know, one way that they found to sort of uh, stand out on the shelf, if you will, is, you know, they just went full, you know, full maximalist on the package design. It's glitter, it's unicorns, it's rainbows. It's like, I am, I am going to stand out because if you stand and look down the coffee aisle, there's a lot of brown and taupe packaging. Um, but I'm sure if that works, a lot will follow suit because we all engage in mimetic behavior. Uh, at some point, sort of art becomes commodified, right? And Michael, I, I really respect your opinions on this. Like, when art is everywhere, do we really value it anymore? Um, is there anything really special about it? And and uh, how how can we not not to try to tease out the answer from you? But is there a way to even avoid that in our in in the way that we are all trying to affect an outcome with a consumer? Once again, Michael Miraflor. It's really tough because. I mean, I hate to say this because I think it's overstated, but, you know, art is subjective. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone knows what they like, or they go through a discovery process of figuring out what they appreciate about art. And there comes a certain point where, yeah, there are diminishing returns on the efficacy of leveraging something like art in packaging in a commercial sense uh, when it reaches a certain level of ubiquity. But that's only when you're utilizing it in the moment as a promotional tactic and without really exploring the backstory or doing any storytelling to lead up to the point that justifies the use of art, right? So as a promotional tactic, sure, it might work in the short term, but if there's no real investment, if it's not really part of the story of the brand that's leveraging the art, then there's almost no point. So the expectation should be that maybe there are short-term short -term gains on that, uh, but maybe not any uh, long-term kind of relationship between the brand, the consumer, and that particular, you know, promotion or, or integration. I hope that answers uh, I think question. it does. I, I'll even come back to you then again, uh, because, you know, I think so much of what we talk about in that world is trying to find complementaries, mm -hmm. uh, things that sort of work well together, uh, more partnerships than ever, more team-ups than ever. We're, we're like in collab culture. Mm -hmm. um, that's the next part of the discourse is really what are friends for? And if we're, if we're kind of thinking about how this collab culture has emerged, it itself has become commodified. Mm -hmm. I see three-way collabs, four-way collabs. Absolutely. Where does it stop? That's tough. And it's, it's evolving in real time. But it is a shame to see collaborations go from novel and special in a, you know, creating value for everyone involved in a one plus one equals three sort of way to it being part of the business plan now. Like if we don't do another collaboration this upcoming quarter, we might not fulfill whatever stalker or, or delivery. And that's sort of a shame because it used to be, what I just mentioned, a, a value add for the consumer, something that's unexpected, something that is original, something that you wouldn't expect otherwise. It's become an expectation. So you can argue that brands have to do collaborations because it's just what you do as a modern, relevant brand. But I, I think the, the whole thing needs to be reevaluated or if not rebooted in some categories like 
sneakers, apparel, anything having to do with youth culture, one can argue that it's been it's been overdone and needs to be reevaluated or cooled down a bit. Just kind of rethinking the model, and that's that's where I, I sense that we're the nicheification of everything kind of makes it really tough to do because I feel like where you weren't speaking to any one person at one point in time, now you're speaking only to one person. But this is where I often talk about working together to stand apart. Again, Maya Knights. Um, hearing about, I think you made a great point, Mike, that we're all working so much harder for our dollar. That value proposition has taken on so much more significance to us. So we really need to see the value in what we're investing in. We're investing in a brand when we buy from them. The other thought that was going through my head when we started this discussion is, even before the pandemic, I was constantly hearing that we need to have a purpose. We need to be a brand with purpose. If you fully understand what that purpose is, which I think has to stem from who your best customers are, who do I resonate with most, who's my most loyal customer, that should give you your map to who should I be collaborating with. And your customers are going to change. They're going to age. Are you going to want to stay with the same demographic? Are you going to move with your customer? necessarily in that sense who you collaborate with has to change Mm. as well um it all starts with understanding who you're who you're selling to what's going to resonate best with them and in that sense picking up on brian's point about art you know it's 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 subjective it's intangible there's a little bit of magic to it which is why Mm. i think we all like retail in that sense but you that's what that's what retailers have to tackle um to, to contend with that's what they have to tackle head on but we're in this really odd situation at the moment this tension between merchant curation smarts and thinking i know my customer i don't need to be told what they like but then on the other hand retailers are absolutely drowning in data that should be able to tell them what we like and what we don't and it's it's marrying that tension finding the the balance between the two and 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 using that to guide your business model and who you collaborate with and the products you innovate with that I think is, is, is absolutely key. It's, it's really difficult. It's, as I said, it's like magic. It's like a little bit of art, but um, it all starts with the customer. It all starts with understanding who you're selling to. I see a lot of heads nodding here. Seems like everyone's in agreement. Jump in. We're drowning in data in the last 10 years in particular. We've added more data to our mix than ever before. The only way that we're ever going to be able to establish the significance of that data. And this is, I think, one of the fundamental challenges that retailers have in the next five years is to actually get to know our communities. And that's not done by data collection. That's done through relationship. And so to get to the friend's point, (laughs) I think you have to be interested in people. You can't just collect stuff off of them. You actually have to care about them mm-hmm. and want, want to know them. And that's a, there's, a, there's a human discernment aspect of this that's a, it's a phenological experience uh, analysis. And that's something that I think brands and retailers need to focus on these coming years is actual experiences and being able to discern and analyze the, the significance of those experiences. Lackman, you you look like you want to jump in. I don't want to give you, I don't want to cut you out of this. No, I mean, it was funny that a couple weeks ago I was talking to a management team that had asked me for some advice on a customer segmentation thing that they were working on and trying to figure out about repurchase rate or something along those lines. And we'd gotten pretty deep into the rabbit hole on this thing. And 
okay, you understand what these segments are, you've identified some correlations between them, there wasn't anything really all that coherent about what customers do in fact like, what's missing, and what strongly uh, grounded hypothesis you have about what would make them happier. And it got to this point where they said, well, I'm not sure what they want. It's like, well, are you talking to them? Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean? I mean, like, I, I have the data in front of it. How do I talk to, pick up the fucking phone. <laughs> talk to your customers, right, right. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't matter what role you're in the company. Go to the CX team, sit down, plug in, and talk to three or four people a day. Uh, I think we get so worried about things being anecdotal in a world where there is this burden of statistical significance that we've lost some of that. We'll be right back after a word from our partners. This podcast is brought to you by Shopware. Shopware is an e-commerce hub that allows you to offer relevant, compelling experiences for your consumers and your back office team. The open source core and the open commerce approach allows brands to build however they want. Turnkey, headless, PWA, or any combination thereof, thanks to the all sales channels welcome approach. Shopware creates the most engaging experiences imaginable from B2B and B2C to multi-store and guided shopping. And Shopware features a worldwide ecosystem of developers, agencies, and technology partners. Find out more at shopware.com FC. That's shopware.com FC. You're on something good. I, I want to pull on the thread. So I, I, speaking of things becoming commoditized, yeah. so it's not that remarkable to understand what an R-squared is, what, a, what the ability to match some data with some other set of data looks like, and what might be correlated. Um, I think on the flip side, we're so worried about things potentially being anecdotal that we're losing some of those more authentic human-to-human narratives that yes. do, in fact, explain those customer stories, which tend to create that value. Mm-hmm. Is that because we want to do things the easy way? Because I don't think that data analysis is necessarily easy. Like, Grace, you seem to, you're, you're jiving with that. Like, Yeah, this is a big part of what I'm working on with some of my, cust- my clients right now is making sure that they're understanding both how to collect that information, but how to synthesize it. Mm-hmm. So every company needs to build a culture of being curious in every single level of the business, and everybody has to be a behavioral psychologist. There's no way around it. No matter who your customer is, you have to understand, to everyone's point here, what it is that they want. And I have never found a situation where you can shortcut it. You can certainly harness and gather as much data as you want, but think about refining crude oil. It needs to go through the process and there needs to be a shepherd for it who can translate all of that information and make it real for the different stakeholders in the business who are making decisions, whether it's collaborations or who the right art partner is, or what it looks like to evolve as your customer base grows or potentially changes. So every company has to have that culture of curiosity in there. And the best thing that I have done for my clients is pick up the slack there because Mm. they're moving very quickly. They're growing, they're changing, their priorities are better spent somewhere else. And my job can be to pick up the phone and to build a program of speaking with their customers, not just their customers, their lapsed customers, the people who are unhappy. So sometimes my best partners in my work are CS teams or people who are actually running operations where they're more directly interfacing with the customers. It might actually be a paid agency who is supporting understanding what it looks like when that product is showing up in front of cold audiences for the first time. My job is to really sit, 
have those one-to-one conversations, and then synthesize a few key learnings on a regular basis so people start to understand that data is really just a way for us to say what other people are thinking. <laughs> I want my, cl- my customers and my clients to be in the business of reacquiring people, which is a different way to talk about retention. It's not the same thing. If you're working with a lot of early stage teams, though, I see more and more in our, in our area of the world, people are doing so much more with so much less and not necessarily less capital because we definitely haven't seen less capital in the last few years, yeah. but right. But the small, smaller teams. So they're, they're putting this capital to work in acquisition side or in data collection side, and they're interpreting all this data, but it's a small group of people who are holding these insights. Mm-hmm. And what they're trying to do is automate the rest of it away. Is that even possible? I'm a softball to the whole team here. Like, is that is that possible? Can is it possible for us to try to do what we're trying to do in our industry with you know a five or six person team and actually be really damn good at it? Because that's where I'm coming down to. Is I feel like a plurality of of identities behind the scenes at a brand really helps to bring better perspective to what the customer wants. So you're not filtering everything through two or three people's lenses. Let me share a quick story that might help yeah. answer this question or open the conversation. The more companies I work with at both the enterprise level and the early stage level, what I've found is nobody is building their business by themselves and everybody is having siloed conversations like this and sharing insights with the people that they're comfortable with. So I have a vision for the future where brands start to see their competitors more and more as their peers, not to collaborate and necessarily share audiences, but we're all trying to build from the same playbook. So the most efficient thing and the most human thing we can do to your point about what friends are really for in this industry, is start to have those conversations and realize we're all supporting the same person. So it might be in our best interest to share some of those insights. If we're all answering the same questions, I have started to get people together and pattern match founders to introduce them and say, you're solving the same problem. You don't have to share openly, but you might find that you're going to answer some questions here that you would never find a solution for if you're operating in the dark. No, I agree. I agree. I think... Funny though, when you've got few people concentrated, everyone's really clear on their direction. Everyone's got a clear idea of who their customer is. You've probably got a limited number of products. It's when you get to that enterprise level, that tier one level, that the brand starts to get diluted, that the dollars and the shareholders become more important. They're not more important than the customer is still the most important thing, but you've also now got shareholders to satisfy. Um, And I think the... I always talk about using data with empathy. So we, we, we have managed to create tier one retailers because of technology. We've been able to scale. I, I often say to big grocers, for example, you've got your point of sale, your, your, your tills, at the, the, you wouldn't, your stores would not exist without those tills because you could be selling stuff and making transactions and taking money, but the bank is not going to recognize that you've made that, put that sale until you push it through a technology platform. And right. that's allowed you to scale. Um, and we are drowning in this data where we're kind of letting the algorithms rule. Um, but I think we need to find a way of collaboratively raising the level of insight to um, a collaborative level where everybody's sharing it and then go and validate it mm. by actually talking to the customers. I think right now, at scale, particularly the bigger com- bigger retailer companies are just relying on the data. They're just relying on the algorithms. And they're kind of forgetting their voice of customer programs. They're forgetting their, they're kind of tucking their customer success people in a room, darkened room, and bringing them out once in a while to sort of report. 
all of these things need to be interconnected and we've kind of lost sight of the human relationships and the collaboration and the value that that could bring and replaced it with uh, the fact that the data will tell me what's happening. From the Visions Report, Phenomenological Brands. Brands exist to deliver experiences. But our means of rating those experiences are inherently subjective. Phenomenology is the study of consciousness and personal experiences. The beginning of wisdom is understanding, and to understand, we must promote discourse. That means we must promote conversation. Instead, brands passively surveil their customers. They interpret their intentions. And what do we do? We pat ourselves on the back for our cleverness. In philosophy, Socratic dialogue has five key components. One, clarifying concepts. Two, probing assumptions. Three, probing rationale, reasons, and evidence. Four, questioning viewpoints and perspectives. And five, probing implications and consequences. And if you're feeling really spicy, you can question the question. So why don't we speak with our customers? And if we did speak with them, wouldn't they challenge us? Wouldn't they question our viewpoints and perspectives? What if brands were more phenomenological? I see this at odds with all of these silos and walled gardens that are being built with media, with retailers as well. And every major retailer out there is trying to stand up a retail media platform right now because it's it's profitable and they need the margin and it's a it's a usually a great opportunity for a brand or an advertiser to get in front of customers as well but that's moving away from what you're talking about we're moving towards more silos i think in terms of distribution and more intermediaries vying for that valuable space between the brand and the customer and getting in between you know being able to collect that data and sell it back to the brand. (laughs) So it's becoming a truly pay-to-play model that's increasingly siloed. Then leading to more disintermediation, unfortunately, which takes brands and retailers further away from their customers. It's difficult, though, because retailers want to feel that they want to own the customer, own the customer relationship. And to your point about friends, you absolutely have to, if you want a 360-degree view of who you're shopping from and that they might only want to come to you once a year or when their kids come back from spring break for spring break or something you need to understand that nuance I think retailers don't necessarily seem that interested in understanding the nuance nowadays. Well, a, a, another example is Instacart who disintermediated the relationship between retailers and shoppers at the end of the day and there was a study from Barclays showing that there was only two retailers in the Instacart ecosystem who shoppers would leave the Instacart app for. Everyone else was more, for any other retailer, shoppers were more aligned with Instacart being their interface Mm. and where their loyalty was. And so that's where, you know, I think the retailers have really recognised what what is our reason for being. If Instacart can come along and disintermediate us, 
we need to get back closer to the customer. So everyone is trying to, you know, desperately hook back into the customer relationship um, and because it's very, that's their reason for being and that's where they're going to to ultimately collect the data and continue operating. This episode is brought to you by Klaivu. Klaivu captures e-commerce shoppers' intent and then leverages AI to create personalized search and discovery experiences that allow your brand to go beyond keywords typed into the search box. Klaivu's end-to-end search and discovery solution is easy to configure, optimize, and maintain for all major shopping platforms in just hours. Klaivu's proprietary technology is driving traffic and conversion and loyalty for over 3,000 leading global brands. Check them out today at Klaivu, that's K-L-E-V-U dot com. Visions is brought to you by Yachtpo, an e-commerce marketing platform that helps online businesses win customers for life with interconnected solutions for reviews, SMS marketing, loyalty programs, and more. With Yachtpo, brands like Steve Madden, Brooklinen, Quip, and Love Wellness are able to create innovative experiences that boost customer loyalty and repeat purchases. Join Yachtpo in keeping commerce on the cutting edge by downloading the Visions report today. Visit yachtpo.com slash visions. That's Y-O-T-P-O dot com slash visions. I have heard for like a decade now that uh, big retailers are complacent. Like, can you really say that anymore? I don't think they are. Mm. I think they're doing a lot. Uh, And I think they're investing a lot. Uh, and I think it's sort of a mistake for us to write them off to say that they, that they don't have, uh, uh, that they're incapable of innovating. Uh, I think we're actually in uh, uh, an interesting reversal uh, cycle of, you know, maybe uh, the innovator's dilemma has become inverted and it's the imitator's dilemma now. We see Instacart disintermediating. It's not just the fact of competition. It's that they figured out how to have a better user experience. They figured out how to have better partnerships why can't I do that? I can absolutely do that. And so these disruptors are being disrupted, not for the fact of the marketplace or liquidity. It's because the big retailers have the bodies and the, the, and the processes to actually make it happen and make it sustainable over a long period of time. Thoughts? But can they be nimble and agile at it? That was what I, you know, mm. I think it's like moving super tankers. Sorry, go ahead. And are they as good as cultivating community and getting insights from community to help evolve the product and ultimately the brand over time. I still see that being the advantage of smaller incumbent direct consumer brands, however you want to characterize them. But you're right in saying that larger enterprise brands have caught up in terms of design, have caught up in terms of CX, have uh, caught up in terms of finding relevance and culture. I think that battle is still very, very active, especially in the hearts and minds of, of consumers who tend to root for the underdog. So that's something to consider. I mean, do you think, though, that, I mean, there's also the acquisition strategy that we've seen, and it's panned out for some and not for others, but Walmart did very well, not necessarily in making those businesses successful that they acquired, but in learning from them. Yeah, the Borg Collective, <laughs> yeah, sort of assimilated, yeah. The, right? Yeah. Well, there are two counterpoints that come up for me as we think about Please. retail, both at the enterprise level and then the moving up to enterprise level. So an argument against what we're talking about, which I think is interesting, is Costco. Which is sorry, Brian's ultra fan. <laughs> I almost brought them up already, yeah. but I'm so glad you did. <laughs> okay, well then, let me reverse what I'm going to say. So, I think Whole Foods is a terrific example of a company that is plugged into 
all sorts of other parts of the supply chain and the way that we spend our money and time in grocery stores. Um, just anecdotally, the Whole Foods in Brooklyn where I shop is increasingly every time I go in, a larger percentage of the people on the floor are fulfilling orders rather yeah. than shoppers for themselves. So I would look at that, but then also I spent time at a Connecticut Whole Foods recently and the assortment was merchandise very differently. Um, especially around the holiday or Mother's Day, we see things like larger bouquets of flowers or Christmas trees or holiday decorations that are all catered. And their their ability to really localize or attempt to localize the experience of the store, I think, is an indicator that they do want to have the experience of customers, real people in the store. Then we look at something at the other end of the spectrum like Costco, which has done such a good job of really understanding people's needs at a base level mm. that they can be a solution in certain markets. And going there when I travel reminds me that as a marketer, it's important to get outside the bubble of what I understand to be an early adoptive consumer who is living in a small urban environment, that there is a whole country of people, at least as we're talking about the American market, that are shopping with different priorities. Costco really doesn't need to or hasn't seemed to need to change the way that they sample in certain regions, or maybe their merchandise or their assortment changes from place to place, but their private label development is an indicator that they really get to call their own shots, and they make their own decisions, and it seems to be working as we think about what the consumer wants and how far they can actually take their own dollar. And I would argue that uh, that in certain stores and regions that they've done a very good job of bringing in local products um, and catering to local customers. Um, granted, I live next to their headquarters, so it's possible that I get a, a different Costco experience than the rest of the world does. Um, but uh, you're right about sampling and you're right about the pro private label. What they do is they're so great at learning about their customers, understanding them through their like broad market like purchasing habits and then applying them to product, which I actually think is huge. Regardless, we're talking like broad market or niche, like the ability, or the, the, the moving product closer to like your marketing team and like product development and speed to market with product is becoming more and more important. We've, we've all seen it. Like marketing has led D to C, not necessarily product. Um, and as we step away from like sort of the like DTC as it's been the last four years and we think about what's next, um, bringing that customer closer or the marketer closer to the product and letting the product speak for itself, especially when we have like these infinite choice, right? If, exactly. Um, that, I think that's going to be essential coming up here. Mike, I want to, I want to give you a chance to, to jump in here. There's, um, I think when you're looking at how many people obtain goods, you know, they think about the corner store. Like that's, that is, I think, most people's default modality. When you kind of revert back to your defaults in a world that's kind of hungry to get back outside, and then you have this dichotomy between you've stoked my intent with some ad, I want that thing now, but I can't have it for five days or three days, I could just go down to the store and get it. How do you, how do you sort of see us combating that uh, right now? Well, I think there's, um, I think there's two things. There's there's going to be some real cost of capital, hard logistics, immediacy stuff where there have been some tacit things that were free in some of these ecosystems that are becoming much more expensive very very quickly. And so I think the broad proliferation of 
20-minute on-demand at the same long-tail inventory availability, we're going to see some resistance to that in terms of how scalable that model is. Um, from there, it does go back to that notion of promise keeping. I think we've talked a lot about how much um, value D2C has created. I think that's in a bit of an echo chamber, especially from the conference-going population, where if you actually look at the enterprise value created from folks that have gone directly to consumers, it's mostly been from folks that kept these broad category promises. Like if you look at the successes, there has been more value created for employees working at those companies and for the way those companies worked by the Jets and the Wayfares and the Backcountry.coms and those folks that keep those broader promises where you can solve a couple different problems than the folks that provide a very individual small point solution that is probably relying on some arbitrage around cheap traffic that's just not going to be a part of our future. And so I think to that end, how do you think about the competition when there are things more immediately available? It just comes back to this notion of are you making a sustainable promise with real differentiation? And there was a period 10 years ago when being able to build a website quickly and being able to use some of these social media advertising, being able to deliver things with e-commerce and categories that hadn't been done before was differentiated. The modalities of what's going to be differentiating in the next 10 years are going to be very different. Very different. And that cycle is just going to keep continuing. So there's room for folks that are really disruptive, D2C or e-com solutions within larger offerings that are omni-channel. And there's going to be lots of continued success in the parts of the Whole Foods and the Costco's and the other folks that execute super well in those more traditional business models. Uh, we've got a lot of work. We've got a lot of work to do. Uh, as we're kind of thinking about, let's shift gears, right? And let's, let's think about the next phase of, of uh, the discourse. And that is really how you stand out. Because that is the key, right? If we can, if we can stand out, uh, the, the hopes are that someone might notice us. Most people probably aren't looking for a protein-laden, better-for-you ramen, but maybe those people are who are looking for it. Finding your audience is a little tougher now than it used to be. Um, I, this is just for the panel, and I'll let you guys sort of weigh in. Uh, what's working right now, and maybe give me a reason why that's not sustainable? Um, what, are, what are ways that brands are trying to stand out right now in a way that's probably uh, a short-term arbitrage, but it's probably not going to last forever? Is it the packaging on the shelf? Is it TikTok? Michael, any I can thoughts? give a specific example. There's a, uh, a matcha brand called Taika, and they collaborated with um, a DAO called Friends with Benefits to collaborate on product development uh, by allowing fans of the brand to purchase an NFT that would give you the rights to vote on the next flavor that would be uh, distributed um, or created and distributed. Um, I mean, it gives, I participated in it as being a fan of the brand, and it made me feel empowered as being part of their R&D engine. It's very unique. It's very novel. It puts you in direct contact with the founders. It gives you a forum to interact with other fans and members of a community. I don't see how something like that could scale, but as an experiment, I think it is one of the best examples of leveraging new technology to unlock different ways of creating value for everyone involved in the ecosystem. And the fact that there will be product on shelf to reach not only the people that participated in this community, but just consumers in general for where they're distributed is sort of amazing, right? Um, but again, I think the big question about if this is something that could be repeated and scaled uh, there are limitations to the technology. There's a limitation to the attention that you can hold from the types of consumers that can get involved. Yep. And you know, this all goes back to the notion of community. Community is talked about 
talked about a bit too much without it having yeah. much of a definition. It's like a capital C that every brand is trying to figure out. Some brands are just throwing people in a Discord, hiring a community manager who's familiar with the platform and letting everyone have at it. I think the difference with this particular example is that it had purpose from the very beginning, right? And it utilized a technology or technology platform in a way that most other brands had not been thinking about it. People have been looking at NFTs as a source of additional revenue. This was less about the secondary market, less about holding, less about flipping. It was more about, oh, there's utility that I can unlock. And I see it immediately in the ability to vote and the ability to connect with like-minded fans of the brand. Um, so th- th- I, I hope that's uh, a, a leading indicator of things to come, not from just a functionality perspective and an R&D perspective, but a willingness of young brands to find different ways to grow, right? And I, w- I would have to think that this, uh, this is making investors think about like, okay, well, there is a lot more that a brand can do than to you know, shovel more money into the social media um, like fireplace to set on fire to acquire new customers, right? Yeah. You can get creative with it. To, to, to Michael's point, I think I might be completely wrong here, but everybody, every brand, every retailer has seen their cost, cost of customer acquisition mm-hmm. uh, burden rise because of the rise of the wall gardens, to Kiri's point. Um, I think if you're going to create a community, you've got to give it a purpose. I think a lot of retailers just think, oh, I'm going to gather you all and mm-hmm. allow you to just go at it, but you have to give them assignments, give them purpose. Um, and to marry those two points, I think what we're going to see, um, what's been, I think hopefully we're going to see brands and retailers retreating from the wall gardens a bit, because I think I was reading the results of your survey and so many consumers said that they were disappointed by something they bought from social media, right? Over-promising. And, and it takes six weeks and <laughs> to arrive and then you're so disappointed when it gets there. Um, I'd really like to see um, the, the other trend that's coming out now, C2M, direct-to-consumer in that sense. I'm not manufacturing things in the hope that you'll like them. I'm waiting for you to tell me what you want, and then I'll go. Nobody's mentioned Shane. You know, Shane, you've got, what, I don't know, tens of thousands of SKUs. But none of that product actually exists in that sense. They're oh, waiting for people to upvote I see. I see. stuff. And, ha- and they are now a bigger um, fashion retailer, the biggest app in the US. They've mm. just overtaken mm. Amazon. Now, that's scale, but on the C2M level, I think also folding that in personalization, just allowing consumers to let to tell you, to Michael's point, what they want. It might not be to the nth degree where um, I'm going to allow you to design your own T-shirt, which actually Amazon recently did. They said, you know, tell me, personalize your own T-shirt, the cut, the size. You can take it to an extreme like that. But I think there's got to be a marriage of listening to consumers and actually being seen to respond to their to their desires rather than looking for lookalikes and I was talking a lot about spraying and praying broadcast yeah. advertising and mm. we're, we're still doing too much of that but I mean again to, to, to the point about the alg- letting the algorithms rule programmatic advertising has gone crazy in that sense and I think we're going to see dim- diminishing returns from that I think that was what you said that was so smart like that word you used the word utility three or four times and I think that your question may have been with the conceit of other channels that are more arbitrage sure. than other channels and it, it might be that 
when you look at some of these brands like uh, Figs or On Running, um, there's an emerging uh, workwear brand called Brunt that's finding incredible product market fit. Mm. They're always rooted in these elements of real deep utility. They are the best shoes for running. These are clothes that are the best way that you can dress yourself if you're a medical professional. This is the best way to take care of your body if you work with your hands. Mm. And at that point, the channels are going to work themselves out. But to your point, if there's that utility that is deeply authentic, that mm. customers are finding that it's very, it can be very hard to call it arbitrage. Mm. You can look at all the same tactics from a place where the utility is lacking, and it probably is going to be pretty unsustainable. Mm. Point of sort of information for me on that front is the way when Kiri talks about Amazon being utility, they offer a very utilitarian customer experience. When when you're talking about utility, I understand more that that relates more to knowing my purpose as a brand. I have one thing that I do and I do it better than anybody else. That's my point of differentiation. So there is, there's, a, there's a negative side to utility when it comes to customer experience. You want to inspire and delight. But at the same time, with the products that you're developing, they have to do what they say on the tin, right? Yeah. yeah. And the more precise you can be about what they do and deliver on that promise, the more exactly. successful you're going to be. Grace, you were going to... Sorry, Grace. Well, in common, most of the brands that we've just spoken about, aside from retailers have a few things in common, and one of them is that they traditionally have a pretty narrow SKU base. Even On Running has a few specific models that are differentiated in like the upper, in the style, and the color. But for the most part, we talk about Brunt, we talk about Figs. Not only have they kept it really conservative in their products, and perhaps they don't feel pressure, maybe from external capital sources or the leadership internally, to over-assort. So you ask the question, what are brands doing trying to stand out? trying to do too much. Mm -hmm. And that might mean collaborating with too many partners, or it might mean trying to create too many products. Interestingly, Instagram just released a report that is pretty damning for brands who are trying to just pump content into that experience, which is that 8% of your audience see every post you publish. So it is a bit of a volume play unless you decide to take it easy on your marketing team, your product development team, your retail relationships, and understand really truly what products are your best bet. And you can certainly get there by testing. Lightweight tests through collaborations are a great way to understand the appetite in your current customer base for different types of products if you want to understand what you might assort into. However, Figs is a great example of a company that really stayed true to its functional mission Brunt as well, I think we'll probably see something similar happen, which is that understanding both the way you're using your working capital and the way you're developing products, you can really understand your customer and hang on to them. Keep that promise to be totally true for your business, but also reacquire that customer over time. Stay with them because really, I think the relationship is different. Brands don't have customers. (laughs) Brands are chosen by the customer. I like to tell my clients that we're being chosen right now. We don't have that customer forever. We're just their brand right now. I can't wait to dig into that dynamic in our next session because I do think that that's the era that we're moving into uh, is a rebalance of power between the consumer right, and the, and the retailer or, or the brand. And this idea that the, the power dynamic between the two shifts dramatically like a pendulum swing. Uh, we... We're moving into a place where our customers are making us make things now. We're giving them power to do that. Our customers are giving us, uh, are, are telling us what they do and don't want. It's not just voting with your dollar anymore. And this may be, this, uh, this phenomenological era that Brian's talking about, 
maybe that is, is uh, uh, any strength overextended can become a weakness. I think that that can also uh, quite limit us uh, in the way that we're building uh, sustainable organizations. Next time on Visions. It seems like everyone who talks passionately about what they're working on automatically goes from zero to 100, talking about getting venture-backed and shooting for a big exit, which is totally fine. I mean, sure. that is that would be an amazing outcome. But um, I would love to see the story of uh, more founders uh, working hard on their projects regardless of that outcome. Um, but maybe that's just something that is not allowed to be spoken of out loud. Like, there is a certain pride in saying, you know, um, this person or that person, or I myself am, am a starving artist. Do you think of this, if you imagine your house as a museum to you, mm-hmm. do you think of it as all of the different brands and the people that are represented, the, the artists that you're patrons for? I mean, we can always debate the merits of all of these smaller brands that are launching this direct-to-consumer boom and whether or not those brands are actually viable, I really wonder what the conversations are like on the investor side, which is how viable is this really beautifully designed brand and how long can it last? The Visions Podcast is brought to you by Future Commerce. You can find more episodes of this podcast and all Future Commerce properties at futurecommerce.fm. Download our 100-page companion guide on cultural and consumer trends by visiting visions.report. That's visions.report.